the triumphant entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to the Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Good morning. If you're new to our church, the way we go through the Bible is just expository, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I realize today is not Palm Sunday. (laughs) This is just where we're at. So here we are, and I will give you a 50-50 chance that I will not do a Palm Sunday message next year. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, for you to guide us, to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you remember P.D. Kim. P.D. Kim died last Sunday of a heart attack. And P.D. spoke here at Regeneration for me when my father-in-law passed away, and he was also one of my closest friends. So if you can please be in prayer for his family, I appreciate that a lot. And if you can be in prayer for me, I'd appreciate that too, because I'll probably have a hard time making it through a sermon. This is a time of Passover in uh, Luke chapter 19. And what this meant was that Jerusalem was filled with activity, and the number of people grew day by day as people were pouring into the temple to celebrate. Now, you keep in mind that not everyone was friendly towards Jesus in this time. And in John's account, in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, it's recorded this. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so you feel the tension here that the religious leaders were looking to kill Jesus and they didn't want him 
to make it to Jerusalem. But what happened? And here in John's account in chapter 12, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now the religious leaders couldn't get to him because so many people were there. There was huge crowds and, and Jesus' entry to Jerusalem was too public for them to pull off killing him. So they kind of left him alone. So Jesus was able to go right into Jerusalem without much trouble. And what they hoped for was to keep Jesus out of Jerusalem. But instead he was given this hero's welcome. And there was nothing the religious leaders could do about it because so many people were excited at Jesus' arrival. Now last week it was pointed out that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem since Luke chapter 9 verse 51 that he said to his disciples in Luke chapter 18 verses 31 through 33 see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Jesus' mission was to go to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is referenced in our text this morning three separate times, with each time getting closer to the temple. So the first one, verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Then you look to verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, and then verse 45, and he entered the temple. Now Jesus entered the heart of where the sin offering was to take place. That's the the temple. And he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins forever. So he goes publicly, he goes victoriously to atone for our sins. But what's wrong with this picture? Remember what the disciples thought that he would do? You know, verse 11. They supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And it wasn't just the disciples who believed that. Those who were excited about Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem thought that as well. That's why they broke out the palm branches and put out their clothing down on the floor for the donkey to ride through. That's why all that happened. They thought the Messiah would come in and rid of this oppressive Roman government. And they thought Messiah would come and directly rule over them and kick out all those unclean Gentiles. And so that's why he told this parable of the Minas that we talked about last week, because it's not about when the Messiah will come and reign. It's about how we live until He returns. And it's not a matter of when. It's a matter of what we do with the Gospel until He returns. Back to our text. Luke 19, verse 29. When He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as it had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So when the crowd started crying this out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in heaven and glory in the highest. They were referencing Old Testament. 
scriptures. They were reciting these, but they were crying them out with worldly expectations, not heavenly expectations. They didn't know how Jesus was going to go about ushering in the kingdom of God. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now you remember back in Luke chapter 4, there was a man with a spirit of an unclean demon. And this is what Luke recorded for us in verses 34 through 35 with the demon saying this, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. Now, why did Jesus tell that demon to be silent? That time was not the right time. It was the wrong time. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to fulfill His mission, and it was the right time, so He answered this in verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The time was right. The time was now. And Jesus was fulfilling His destiny, drawing near to Jerusalem. And that destiny's focal point is the cross. Which is why the disciples were just really confused because a king entering his kingdom is supposed to do so triumphantly and victoriously, not to suffer and die. A dead king cannot rule. How is that possible? So Jesus telling them that He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and killed does not make any sense to these guys. And they're forgetting the earlier teachings that Jesus taught them. Things like John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. And in order to be born again, there has to be a death. You have to die to yourself. Jesus physically and literally died and He rose again on the third day for us to be born again and there needs to be a death to our old self. And a transformation like that of Zacchaeus earlier in the chapter, the kingdom of God is totally different. It's it's where some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last and where the kingdom of God is, is for the least of these in the world. And you and I don't get into the kingdom based on who we know or what we have. It is only by God's grace. And for those who think that you don't have a chance to enter into the kingdom of God because you're so far from God, you actually have the best opportunities of being welcomed in. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The religious folks in Jesus' day were were the ones who had it all wrong. It was the religious people. It It were the people that knew the scriptures. Their religious arrogance actually pulled them away from God, and it's much like today. It's not that much different. I don't think that the most religious people are necessarily the closest to God. I know quite a few religiously arrogant people who I think are really far from the kingdom of God. The question is, do you know how close you are to God? Do you have a repentant heart? You know you're messed up, and you know that you need Him. And if you know those things, you're in a pretty good place. You're in a really good place. Religious people will always struggle with their pride because we have a tough time thinking that we're the lowest, that we're the least, that we're the last. 
And if you've never thought of yourself as the lowest, the least, or the last, perhaps you're not of the kingdom of God because that's who the kingdom of God is for. God's economy is totally different. The focal point isn't the throne. The focal point is the cross. And it's about bringing transformation to one's life, their heart, their mind, their spirit. And it's not about politics or or positions or resources. Yet, what do we focus on in this world? So how has the Gospel transformed your life? And do you seek to transform others' lives with the Gospel or with the things of this world? Thinking that policy will change something or or, or legal stuff will change something. Are we going about the king's business or the world's business? And I want to share with you Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Petey's church was named Refuge. The last picture that he took was uh, of his hands and it was seek refuge. He didn't confuse his heavenly citizenship with his earthly citizenship. See, for us, not to confuse our heavenly things with trivial things. The things of the kingdom of God are, are much greater than politics and the global events of the world. And I bring this up because... At this time of year, people are getting all stirred up because November is around the corner. And they're starting to throw all this stuff around. And oftentimes we get caught up in how the world is going to solve its own problems. But I have a question. How have we done? Are we any better than we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? Are we any less sinful? I mean, really, how have we done? You look at the world events of today, does it show that we love God and that we love one another more than we did before? And may it be that we are actually being distracted for living a life for the kingdom of God because we're so preoccupied with our earthly kingdoms. And you look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The things of this world are so temporary. We have a history of all the great empires of the world. Where have they gone? Think about the greatest empires of the world. The Ottoman Empire ruled for over 700 years. Where are they now? A country called Turkey. What about the Mongol Empire? It was the largest contiguous empire in the history of the world ever to exist. Where are they now? 
Mongolia. Do you know much about Mongolia other than where it's at? Exactly. Right? This is the largest contiguous empire to ever exist. The Roman Empire. The Persian Empire. And yes, they've influenced our modern world. But where are they now? Modern Italy and Iran. And so these worldly powers, they just come and go. But the Word of God, it, it stands. The Word of God stands. Jesus said in His parable in Luke chapter 19, verse 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then several verses later, Jesus rode a colt toward Jerusalem. Was that a coincidence? It was not. He knew there would be a rebellion against His rule. And that's part of His sadness while Jesus physically walked on the earth. But it's happening right now, just spiritually. There's a rebellion against Jesus. And people who don't want Him to reign over them. And it's not because He has this low self-esteem and and He's insecure and He needs people to worship Him. It's that without Him, we have nothing. And the pluralism of society, it can be a really enriching thing. It can. But it can also be a thing that is killing us if we don't know how to to separate the things. So in regards to tolerance, yes, a social tolerance. Where in a democracy, we are able to exercise our freedom of expression, whether it is religious or cultural. And so yes, a social tolerance is to be exercised. We are to exercise a legal tolerance. Right Where we do not discriminate against others and we all have the same rights as everyone else as people, as a humanity. Where it becomes dangerous is when we've readily accepted social tolerance and we've readily accepted legal tolerance and we've translated that into readily accepting intellectual tolerance. We cannot have intellectual tolerance. That makes no sense. Intellectual tolerance is where There is a belief that every religious worldview is as legitimate as the other one, where there is no one religious worldview that has a more solid foundation than the other. And that just doesn't make any logical or reasonable sense. That's more sentiment than it is logic or reason. Really, think about this. There are some religions or worldviews that are based on mythology or some based on superstition. That is not the same equal footing. And there are some that are completely wrong in their science. Whether it be history or archaeology or geography, physical sciences, biological sciences. So we are not all on equal footing. Have you read the Genesis record? It fits. Have you read these other creation stories? Turtles holding it up or a man? It doesn't fit. Christianity does not contradict. It makes intellectual sense. It flows with logic and reasoning. For example, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said that. He said that. Therefore, there is no room for intellectual tolerance there. Because He said that. It wouldn't be logical or reasonable to... Exercise intellectual tolerance with other religions and Jesus because He made this exclusive claim. You can't mix them. Now if you're intellectually tolerant toward compromising 
Jesus' statements and the Gospel, it is impossible for you to go with evangelism. It is impossible. Of the Christian message, that is. You might be able to do something that's more universal or Unitarian, but you cannot do the Christian Gospel. The Word of God is authoritative, sufficient, and Jesus' claims are exclusive even if it rubs you the wrong way or the people that you know the wrong way. It's just logical and reason. Right? Truth is truth. And modern society can't change that no matter how hard they try. Two plus two does not ever equal five. So when we fully commit to serving the King, when we fully commit to going about the business of the Gospel, when we know beyond a shadow of the doubt what kingdom we are citizens of, we can truly be free to live a meaningful life. It changes everything. Because if we have that perspective, everything else we do in life, we do to the glory of God. And if we live like that, what is there to fear? What's the greatest fear of men? I hear that one of the top ones is public speaking. I conquered that. No. I think it's near the top. Well, I'm going to have you up here and you'll just die. But I think the top one, though, is death. I think. I think the top one is death. And so I shared with you about PD. 36. And so I found out Monday morning, and so I've been mourning and grieving ever since. I've never cried that hard for someone I've lost. I think it's because I'm just more in touch with my feelings. Because before I would just be, I'm tough, I'm a man, I'm not going to cry. No, I cry freely, I'm cool, I'm crying. But I was so sad because we just spent a week together at a senior pastor's conference in Murrieta, and it had hot springs. So we were in the hot tubs, we were hanging out, we were laughing, and we were having meals together, and we were talking about vacations we would take with one another's families to the redwoods and the beaches and to Disneyland when I got back home from Israel. We were uh, talking about arranged marriages of our children. My three girls and his three sons, because, you know, his three sons are eight, six, and four, and then he has a baby girl, and mine are six, four, and two. I was like, those are good ages, man. Like, you know, that, that, that fits, you know, all of them. They can, we can do that. And so we were talking about it, and I even have the text messages still afterwards joking about it. And I know that PD didn't fear death. I know that. He was laser-focused on the kingdom of God. His last sermon was talking about how he didn't think about heaven enough. That was just last Saturday. And he celebrated his 10-year anniversary two days before his death. And his wife was just sharing at the memorial service how she kind of snuck into his devotional journal and was being nosy and reading through it. He was going through the Proverbs, and the proverb that he ended up studying or doing a devotional to was Proverbs 31 that day. He was writing, God, thank you so much for blessing me with this woman, and all the things about Proverbs 31. And she was like, what a liar, I'm not like that. But he had his eyes on eternity, and he was focused on eternity. 
And Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I know where Petey is now because of his relationship with Jesus. But for those without Jesus, death is the least of your fears. It's what happens after death that's fearful. See, temporary things, they, they, they pass. It, it's the things that have eternal implications that we need to fear. The Bible in Corinthians talks about how we are in tents. These are tents. And if any of you who are campers, which are a lot of you, a lot of you love camping here, you know that it's temporary, it's set up, right? And you go home. And our home, we're not there. We're in tents. We have an eternal destination, an eternal home to go to. And there are worthy things that we as Christians are to fight for, like justice and peace. But let's not lose sight of what sets us apart from the world. It's the gospel. We have the gospel, which is not for the temporary fight for injustice. It is not the the temporary fight to carry out peace. The gospel allows us to carry those things into eternity. Everlasting. The gospel allows for an everlasting justice, an everlasting peace. It's not just for the temporary moment. And yet so many of us get stuck on the now and forget to present the gospel to carry on for eternity. Notice how Jesus rode into Jerusalem in verse 36. Jesus wasn't walking into Jerusalem as a pilgrim does, as we did as interns and, and myself, as we walked. He was riding into Jerusalem as king. Jesus wasn't riding on a colt because he was tired. Right? This was intentional. This was prophetic. And it was prophesied over 600 years before his birth in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 600 years before his birth. That was prophesied about. And for those with Jesus at the time, they recognized what was happening here. They, they knew Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They knew that. What they didn't understand was that it wasn't going to be immediate, that he was going to die, raise from the dead, and return later. Verse 41 of our text. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Why did he weep? Their chance passed them by. That was it. And even though they witnessed the miracles and, and they heard his teachings, they rejected him. And so it was hidden from their eyes. And this happens to people right now. Right? This happens to people here at Regen where, where the gospel is preached and shared, yet still some don't change. If you've been here for any set amount of time, you know the gospel. Because I've said it over and over again. It's impossible unless, unless you're just like, whenever I talk about it. But you know that Jesus came to rescue you from your sins. That He is your only Savior from your sins. That if you submit your life to Him, 
and accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you will be set free from the bondage of sin and you will have eternal destiny with Him. And so now you have to respond to that. If you say, I've never heard it before. You just heard it. And now you have to respond to that. And if you hear the Holy Spirit prompting to give your life to God, do not ignore it. Because you don't have a clue how long you have to live. 36 years old. Playing basketball. He's pretty healthy. He was exercising. He played with the guys from his church all the time and with other churches and stuff. You don't know. You have no clue when your time is up. What about your loved ones? You don't know how long they have. If you have this gospel message, what about your loved ones that don't know Jesus? What about those around you and, and, and who need to hear the gospel from you? And if you hear Him, if you see Him, it's time to respond to accept Him or to do something about it, to, to, to use your minus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It is not later. It is right now. You don't know when you're going to take your last breath. And the favorable time for you is now. Jesus was right in front of them. And yet they couldn't see Him. Jesus is right in front of you. Not me. Spiritually. What will you do about that? What will you do? Will you accept Him or reject Him? You believe in justice and peace. Just like many of our church. That's why a lot of you are here. Because you know we stand for that stuff. You know that we, we fight for justice and peace. Yet, how long will you reject the author of that? See, the Jews, they greet one another with shalom. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Everywhere, shalom, shalom, shalom. The Arabs do the same thing. Salam, 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 salam. It's the same thing. It's the same meaning. It means peace. Do you see the irony in that without me saying anymore? Isn't that crazy? Peace, 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 peace. Are you kidding me? But do you have peace today that will carry into eternity? Not just temporary peace and that, you know, I live in the United States and I have a good job. But do you know what happens in eternity after you die? You will not have everlasting peace without Jesus. Jesus who washes your sin, your every dark hidden thing about you. Washes you white as snow. And experiencing a temporary peace now without eternal peace, that's futile. We just came back from the Middle East where you know you can feel the tension. And how people are striving for peace and they're doing all that they can. Really good organizations, which I believe that we are to be advocates of. But the true peace is only going to come when Jesus Christ returns. That's the only time. 
That's not to say like, oh, forget about it. Let's not do anything about it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's get busy and, and do what we can. But real lasting peace in that region is not happening until Jesus Christ comes back. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. When Jesus arrived at the temple, he found that, that it was made into this place of commerce, into this place, instead of a place of prayer, instead of a place of mercy, it was made into this place of commercial trade. And so the priests of the temple, they should have been addressing this before it reached such a depravity, but they were part of the problem. And so he, Jesus already cleaned house once before, right? Back in John chapter 2. He already did it once before. It was during the Passover then as well. Verses 13 through 16, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found that those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But as soon as he left, they started changing it back to a place of trade instead of a place of prayers and praise. And so here we are in Luke chapter 19, and Jesus sets the temple back to its original purpose. Now keep in mind that Jesus was not a complete stranger to the temple, as I just read in John chapter 2, and he also went there as a kid. There's a story recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year. At the feast of the Passover. No stranger to Jerusalem, Jesus. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's his father's house. And he's going to set it straight as it should be. It was was to be a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place of praise. And the first temple built by Solomon, it was already destroyed once. This one that Jesus was in was the second temple that was built by Herod the Great. And this was prophesied to be destroyed again, and it was. And we can only see remnants of it now. And that's why you see the western wall where all the people go to pray and and do their scripture readings and things like that. That is the most precious site for the Jews. That is the only thing left. Do you know Jesus is king this morning? Ultimately serving Him in everything that you do. Living your life based on His Word. He is the only worthy sacrifice to atone for your sins. Everything that is putrid to God. Every action, every word, every thought. Anything that makes you unclean before a holy God, just God, He makes clean. 
He does that. And once you understand this, your entire life is to be about the kingdom of God. Now, if you still don't understand this, because I'm not saying that I'm the most eloquent of speakers and things like that, let's talk. Let's set up a time and let's talk through these things and let's discuss these things. It's important enough that we set a time and let's talk about these things. And I'm not saying this because I have it all down and that I'm perfect. I'm, I'm a sinner, just like you. You know, I, I like nice things, just like you do. I do. Ask my wife. We're in this ongoing discussion about our next car because we need one. And I want a sports car. <laughs> and she wants me to get something more practical. <laughs> and so I struggle through these things just like you. It's not that owning a sports car is a sin, right? <laughs> but it takes prayer and it takes effort to live in accordance to His kingdom. And I'm hoping that that means I can get a sports car as I toil through this stuff. And I'll use that sports car for the kingdom. We exist for the kingdom of God. Right? We live for the kingdom of God. Whatever you do for a job, wherever you find yourself, we are to be about Jesus' business of proclaiming the gospel. We are children of the kingdom. And we are to deliver the king's message. Before you pursue your ambitions... Ask yourself how that fits into serving Jesus. Before you explore things about you know, where you're going to live or what you're going to do, ask yourself how that fits into serving Jesus. How does it fit? I didn't seek to become a pastor at all, to tell you the truth. Some of you are like, oh, you must have been, had a call when you were a young child. And I am no Samuel. I didn't even seek to live in Oakland. Sorry, I didn't. This would be the furthest place for me. Never in a million years would my own flesh lead me to this occupation or to live in this city. Really? Because why would somebody leave a financially secure place to live in the fifth most violent city in the United States? It makes no sense. That makes no sense. I was with a buddy of mine, we, PD and I and him, we were all buddies. We were, you know, the only Asian pastors married to white women. So, you know, that's, that's how it happened. So we all hang out together all the time and stuff like that. And so, I, you know, you guys know that we have assistant pastor openings here. So I was trying to recruit him to apply here. And he was like, oh man, you're going to have to talk to my wife. I was like, all right, I'll talk to your wife. And so I went to talk to her and I said, would you guys pray about coming to Oakland and serving in Oakland? And she was like, Oakland? No. <laughs> so, you know, like, you, you wouldn't choose. Maybe you crazy ones are, I don't know. Or maybe you, want, maybe you, you really holy filled people. But, but me, I wouldn't choose. And there may be a bunch of reasons why people do it, but the only reason good enough for me was the call of God. That's it. I would not be here unless it was the call of God. It's not worth it to me. It's just too much for me to give up for anything less. For my family and for myself. It's not worth it. Not for me. I used to live on Lombard Street in Telegraph Hill. 
You know where Coit Tower is? You know that winding street with all the beautiful photographs? That's my street. I was on the eighth floor of a beautiful modern complex overlooking the bay. I had maid service. Do you know how awesome it is to come home to find your toilet paper folded in a flower? A flower, not even the triangle. A flower. I was like, I've made it. I've made it. I called my mom because you know my mom's all superstitious. She's Chinese. Eight is a big number. Mom, I live on the eighth floor. Oh, you know. I had a designated parking spot in San Francisco. Huge, not street parking. Three parking spots away from the elevator. Do you know how incredible that is? You have no clue what I could have sold that spot for. But as servants of the king, we are about his eternal business. We're about his business. Not what's temporary. Whatever you and I do, we do it for the glory of God. And we do whatever he calls us to do, no matter the cost. We do it. We are sold out to the kingdom. We do it. Just like my buddy Petey. Just like my buddy Petey. He did it. You know, he had a comfortable job as a pastor up in Napa. He didn't have to go plant a church from scratch in American Canyon. The Lord called him. So he did it. Taking steps of faith. Four young children. And he did it. And he made such headway into the community. The Parks and Rec Department asked him to be hired because he was planning all their 4th of July events. And it went so well last year that they asked him to do it this year and they wanted to hire him. And he was like, oh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm planting a church and you know, I'm just too busy. And they're like, whatever you want to do, whatever hours, however little, however much, we'll, we'll just go with your schedule. And so he died on July 1st, right before the 4th of July. But the testimony that he made into that city was incredible. I mean, his, the, the memorial service on Friday was just packed out. They just kind of flowed from that church. And it was just amazing. Don't cheapen your life. Live for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I lift up the Kim family to you. And I pray for Jenny and, and the four kids. I pray, Lord that as they grieve and they mourn the loss of their father and husband, I pray, God, that you would comfort their spirits. Lord, we don't understand the things that happen in our life. We don't understand the decisions made. But we know you are sovereign and that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.